What do you know about the Apocrypha? Why are these books in between the Old Testament and New Testament in Catholic Bibles and not in Protestant Bibles? How did they come about, and what are we supposed to think of them today? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran with Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. We'll answer these questions and more in our lesson today, How We Got the Apocrypha and Its Relationship to the Septuagint. Now here's our plan today. Last week we looked at the Old Testament that 2 Peter 1.21 sums up in this way. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We looked at the historical markers in the books, the geographical and historical verifications, and finally, how Jesus verified the truth of the Old Testament. Now, this week, we're going to apply some of the same criteria as we look at the Apocrypha. We'll look at what it is, how it came about, plus why some churches include it in their Bibles and some do not. We'll also look at the Septuagint, what it is, when and how it was created, and how it is related to the Apocrypha, which is really important for understanding it. Now, what is the Apocrypha? The Apocrypha, it consists of additions to the books of the Old Testament found in Catholic Bibles, Eastern Orthodox, and Assyrian Orthodox churches. Its name means hidden. They are also called the Deuterial Canonical books, meaning a second or subsequent canon. Now, the books that make it up are 1st and 2nd Edris, Tobit, Judith, the rest of Esther, Wisdom, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, Song of the Three Children, the Story of Susanna, the Idol Bell and the Dragon, the Prayer of Manassas, and 1st and 2nd Maccabees. These books vary in content from very fanciful folk stories, books that claim to be additions to the accepted biblical books, and historical accounts of the Jewish people during the time between the Old and New Testaments. Now we're going to go back and forth with world history and Bible manuscript history as we evaluate them. Again, this is a bit of a complicated lesson, but hang in there as what we talk about is the basis for what we believe is God's word to us. It defines our salvation and tells us how to live today. More than many others, you may want to look at the notes on Bible805.com and download the chart that goes with the lesson. Now, let's get into where we left off in Old Testament history. The Jews are back in the land after the Babylonian captivity, but they're under foreign domination, and they will be, except for the brief Maccabean period. The writing of the Old Testament closes with Ezra and the Great Synagogue, which we talked about, and the last books of the Old Testament are First and Second Chronicles, and the last prophet, Malachi. Then there ensued what we call 400 silent years until John the Baptist arrived for the Christian church. Now, though we call them silent years, God was at work, of course, during this time. There was a lot of things going on, and in our next lesson, we will actually talk about that time period. But let's get back to the Apocrypha now. It's very important to remember that for the Jewish faith, no prophet as recognized by them, spoke during this time, during this 400 years of so-called silent years. They considered their canon closed at the start of it. 
The Hebrew canon, the Old Testament, was written in Hebrew. It was carefully preserved and copied. But again, it closed at the start of this 400-year intertestamental time. And spoiler alert, that's when all the books of the Apocrypha were written. This version that the Hebrews had, that the Jewish faith had, is what will later be known as the Masoretic Text. And that's what forms the basis for our Old Testament today. No new books were ever added to this carefully preserved Hebrew manuscript of the Bible. But there was a problem going on in that, like I just said, it was written in Hebrew, but most of the people in the Middle East from the time of the Assyrian Empire on spoke Aramaic because that was the language of the ruling nation. In addition to being the language of the Assyrians, it was the primary language of the Babylonians who were the next world power and then the next world power, the Medo-Persian Empire. All of them conquered Israel, and of course, as subjects, the people in Israel, the Jewish people, were forced to learn Aramaic, which they did. Now, Hebrew, as a spoken language, though it was still considered a sacred language, it was still used in the synagogues, it ceased to be a commonly spoken language until the revival of Palestine and modern-day Israel. But that's beyond the scope of this lesson. Now a little bit more about the Aramaic language. It's from the same linguistic group as Hebrew. It uses the same alphabet, but it's a completely different language. It's kind of like English and Spanish. English and Spanish both use the same alphabet, but they're completely different languages. It was it was the day-to-day language of Israel in the Second Temple period. This ran from about 539 BC to 70 AD. In other words, it was from when Israel was back in the land after the Babylonian captivity to the to the destruction of the temple after the death and resurrection of Jesus. It was, though, the primary language spoken by Jesus in day-to-day conversation. And you may not realize this, but that was the language heard in the Passion of the Christ. Though he, although Jesus also spoke Greek, we have some instances of that in the New Testament, and he read and understood Hebrew, which he would have done when he went to the temple, stood up, and read the scrolls, and, and talked about them. Now, here's the challenge. The Old Testament in Hebrew was not translated into Aramaic. It would be as if you only spoke Spanish and the only Bibles accessible to you were in English or sort of a more modern day example. If you grew up in the Catholic Church and you remember what it was like to not understand the service because it was in Latin. Now, many of you are too young for this, but if you were older, you might remember, as I did, going to church with my grandmother and hearing everything in Latin. And it's interesting because somehow our mindset in that time was, well, that's just how it's supposed to be. These are these holy mysteries, and and we don't need to really understand it. And without being too presumptuous, I sort of think that maybe it was like that for the Hebrews in that day. They would go to synagogue or whatever, and if they didn't necessarily understand Hebrew, they just kind of thought, well, you know, that's that's kind of how it is. Now, 
remember too that Latin was the everyday language when the Mass was first created. And the church kept it, kept the language even when people could no longer understand it. And that's very similar to how it worked out for the Jews during this time. Their Bible was in a language, Hebrew, that most of them could no longer read or understand. The only way most Jews had access to their Bible was through the Talmud, the commentaries that began to be written at that time, which were in Aramaic and they quoted some Hebrew passages. So if a, a rabbi was doing a commentary on some passage, say Psalm 51 or, or whatever, talking about David's repentance, he might quote the verse in Aramaic, translating it from the Hebrew. But history does move on. And another language actually becomes widely used during this time. This was the golden age of Greece, this in-between time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is the time of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, and the Greek culture was now greatly expanding in the world. And the reason for it was because of Alexander the Great. He happened to have as his tutor, and a lot of people don't realize this, Aristotle. And yes, it's the Aristotle who was the student of Plato. And Alexander lived from 335 to 323 BC. He was raised and under the influence of Aristotle loving Greek culture. When he comes to power and (laughs) proceeds to conquer the world, he unifies it and he wants all of the world to share in Greek culture. And that of course includes the Greek language, and a particular dialect of it, the Koine or Common Greek, which he refined for his army and the people that he conquered. Now, after Alexander dies, his kingdom is split into four parts, and we're going to skip the history on that. It's really interesting. I love studying it years ago. But the point that we're going to get to is one of the sons of one of his generals, Ptolemy II, Ptolemy Philadelphus, becomes becomes the king of Ptolemaic Egypt from 283 to 246, where there happened to be a very large Jewish population. And Ptolemy, he was a a very caring man in some ways as he comes across in scripture, and he wanted his Jewish subjects to have the scriptures in their own language. And here is the legend about it. It says, King Ptolemy once gathered 72 elders. He placed them in 72 chambers, each of them in a separate one, without revealing to them why they were summoned. He entered each one's room and said, Write for me the Torah of Moses, your teacher. God put it in the heart of each one to translate identically as all the others did. Again, this is legend, and it probably didn't happen quite like that. But regardless of exactly how it came about, a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and in particular, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, was translated at that time. And then translations of the rest of the books were made as time went on. The result is what we call the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. And the Septuagint, you'll often see it just abbreviated as a capital LXX. 
and it is in the Koine Greek. It's the Koine Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. Now you're probably thinking, now what, what does all this have to do with the Apocrypha? Well, actually it's really, really important because of the timing of when it was translated and also the way the Septuagint came about, because you see the Septuagint was kind of a rather loose, um, not tightly controlled translation. As one commentator said, scholars agree, it's not altogether clear, which was, talking about the books in the Septuagint, which was translated when or where. Some may even have been translated twice into different versions and then revised. There, the point being, and this is really important, remember this, there was no one set text, as there was with the Masoretic, the traditional Hebrew text of the Bible. First, again, the Torah was translated into the Septuagint, and then other books, books were translated over the next two centuries. Now, here's the key, and here is what ties it all together. Additional books, the ones that make up the Apocrypha, were added at various times during this process. And they were then inserted into the same manuscripts that contained the Bible. These books, again, are what we call the Apocrypha. There was no careful scholarship, no one sect text, no exact history of how or when any of these additional books came into being. Now, here's a little complication on the commingling of the Septuagint and the Apocrypha. The Septuagint was the translation that Jesus, Paul, and other New Testament writers used when they quoted the Old Testament. It's a loose, more colloquial translation, sort of like, you might say today, the message of the Living Bible. And that's why when Jesus or Paul quotes some passages, and it's in our, our New Testament, from the Old Testament, if you know the Old Testament really well, you'll kind of go, well, that isn't, that isn't exactly what it says. It is a little bit different. Now, it doesn't change the meaning or anything like that. But the reason that it sounds different, the reason that sometimes the wording is slightly different, is because our Old Testament is translated from what I talked about earlier, the Masoretic text. And they are quoting from the Septuagint. However, neither Jesus Paul, nor any New Testament author, quotes anything from the Apocrypha as authoritative scripture. And like we talked about in our last lesson, Jesus quoted frequently. And again, I'm, I'm just, <laughs> in my yearly Bible readings, I'm in Matthew, and reading again, Jesus again and again and again will say, have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? And then he will quote something from the Old Testament. So from the basic scriptures that we have, not including the Apocrypha, Jesus quotes many passages, but never anything from the Apocrypha. Now, some details on how it then became part of the Catholic Bible. By 382 AD, things, this is after uh, the Christian church started, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and the Christian church is kind of going along, things once again shifted on the world stage, and Latin 
because Roman taken over was now the language of most people. We've gone from Hebrew to Aramaic to Greek, now it's Latin. And unfortunately, people no longer understood the Greek Septuagint, with the Apocrypha included. And various people were trying to make Latin translations of the Bible so people could understand it. Now, a man named Jerome comes along, and he got permission from the Pope to redo it, to redo the different translations, and to make an accurate translation of the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint that he had, and of course the New Testament was already in Greek. Well, he starts working on it, but then he thought, you know, I should really go back to the Hebrew scriptures and see what they actually say, and that's when he made an absolutely astounding discovery. And what he discovered is that in the original Hebrew, in that Masoretic text that I, I've referred to, the one that closed with the book of Chronicles, the last prophet being Malachi, there was no Apocrypha. And he realized, this, this isn't part of the original Bible. This shouldn't be included. Well, he complained to the Pope that it, that it wasn't in the Hebrew Bible. It never had been there, and it shouldn't be in there now. But he was forced to include it. And so the Bible that he translated, which became the very popular and much used Bible throughout many, many years, it became the Latin Vulgate Bible. It was the Bible of the Catholic Church, and unfortunately, it included the Apocrypha. Now, let me just say something about the title, calling it the Latin Vulgate. That sounds so scholarly and important and all that. But the word Vulgate actually comes from the word vulgar, meaning of the common people. It was actually the most easily understood translation at the time. But unfortunately, it did have the Apocrypha in it. However, Jerome didn't agree with that. And um, this is how Christianity Today, in one of their articles about it, describes it. It says, in translating the Old Testament, something struck Jerome. The books the Jews regarded as Holy Scripture did not include the books we know as the Apocrypha. These books had been included in the Septuagint, the basis of most older translations, and Jerome was compelled by the church to include them. But he made it clear that in his opinion, the Apocryphal books were only what he called Liber Ecclesiastici. In other words, church books to be read for edification as opposed to Liber Canonicity. In other words, canonical books to establish doctrine. Over 1,000 years later, the leaders of the Reformation would follow Jerome's lead and not include the Apocrypha in the Protestant Bibles. Now, additional reasons why the Apocrypha is not accepted in Protestant Bibles. I'll give you some overall comments. In addition to the fact that they were not part of the affirmed Old Testament canon as confirmed by Jewish and early church history and not part of Old Testament manuscripts until the translation of the Septuagint, there's other problems. Many of them, in fact, most of them are anonymous. They're uncertain. We don't know who wrote them. They're 
it's false authorship. And this is something that if you study historical writings that you see constantly in false writings. The author does not want to say, I'm, you know, Joe down the street and I wanted to write this up. Actually, that's kind of flippant, forgive me. But, you know, it it's usually someone who they have no authority on their own. And so they claim to be a certain person uh, that was famous or whatever. These, they also uh, contain, the Apocrypha also contains supposed additions to canonical books, but we don't know, who, again, who wrote them or when they were added or why this addition came about. There are many mythical, fantastical stories in them. There's some good history that people often talk about, oh, well, the Maccabees are really useful. Yeah, some good history, but a lot of the history in various books is really incorrect and cannot be verified. And lots Lots of bad theology. I'll talk about the specifics of some of the bad theology shortly, but there are additional overall reasons why they're not included. Again, they were never quoted by Jesus. Anything in the Apocrypha is never quoted by Jesus and other New Testament writers, though they all quote extensively from the Old Testament as handed down through the Masoretic text. They were rejected by the Jewish community. The Jewish community never accepted any of these books because they believed and stated that the prophetic gifts had ceased in Israel before the Apocrypha was written. Josephus also explicitly rejected the Apocrypha and listed the Hebrew canon to be 22 books, which when you look at the groupings of books and all that, is exactly what our Old Testament contains today. Again, many false teachings not consistent with accepted scriptures, and now we're going to look at some of them. There are additions to biblical stories. As part of the rest of the book of Esther, we find this passage, then Mordecai I said, God hath done these things. Now, most likely, that was a scribal addition and an answer to the problem that Esther does not contain the name of God. The canonical book of Esther doesn't contain the name of God. And that bothered people a lot, though you can clearly see God's hand in it. And apparently, some scribes somewhere along the line said, well, I'm going to correct this, and I'm going to add what really should be in there. And so, the uh, this, this um, apocryphal book was written. Again, there are many historical errors. For example, in Judith 1.5, it says, Now in the twelfth year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Assyrians, who reigned in Nineveh, a great city, fought against Arphaxad and overcame him. This is incorrect. The book of Judith says that Nebuchadnezzar was king of the Assyrians when he was, in reality, the king of the Babylonians. And there are many, many errors like this and non-historical stories. And what this does is it brings down these books to the level of the incorrect scriptures of other religions that have no real history or real geography. In contrast to our canonical Bibles, have very specific history and geography that we can trust, that we can rely on, that's verified in other sources. And the apocryphal books, they're not careful on this at all. And also, these books also condone the use of magic. In Tobit 6, 5 through 7, it says, Then the angel said to him, Take out the entrails of this fish, and lay up his heart, and his gall, and his 
Tobias liver for thee, for these are necessary for useful medicines. Then Tobias asked the angel and said to him, I beseech thee, brother Azarius, tell me what remedies are these things good for, which thou hast bid me keep of the fish. And the angel answering said, Thou put a little piece of its heart upon the coals, the smoke whereof driveth away all kinds of devils, either from man or from woman, so that they come no more to them. Now, is it true that smoke from a fish's heart, when burned, drives away evil spirits? Of course it's not. Such a superstitious teaching has no place in what claims to be the Word of God. There are no correct prophecies in these books. In Baruch 6.2 it says, And when you come to Babylon, you shall be there many years, and for a long time, even to seven generations. Now remember, a generation is 30 years, so this would mean that Israel would be there 210 years. The passage goes on, And after that I will bring you away from thence in peace. Now Baruch Baruch says that the Jews would serve in Babylon for seven generations. Again, that would be 210 years. But in contrast, the canonical book of Jeremiah says that it would be for 70 years. In Jeremiah 25:11, it says, And this whole land shall be a desolation and horror, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And that is exactly what happened. In these books, in addition, there is no new messianic prophecy and actually little to nothing to little to nothing in them about the Messiah overall. The so-called prophecy in them is not cited as authoritative by any book written after them. And what's really interesting is they even acknowledge that there were no prophets in Israel during this time. In Maccabees 9.27 it says, Thus there was great distress in Israel, such has not been since the time that prophets ceased to appear among them. Now, they also teach false doctrines. One of them is that the forgiveness of sins is by human effort and primarily by money. Salvation by works is taught in Tobit 4.11 where it says, For alms deliver from all sin and from death and will not suffer the soul to go into darkness. Tobit 12.9 says, For alms delivereth from death and the same that is that which purgeth away sins and maketh to find mercy and life everlasting. Money is again talked about as an offering for the sins of the dead. In Maccabees 12.43 it says, And making a gathering, he sent 12,000 drachmas of silver to Jerusalem for sacrifice, to be offered for the sins of the dead, thinking well and religiously concerning the resurrection. This later became passages like this. Um, prior to the Reformation, a priest named Tetzel, who lived during Luther's time, and he was wanting to raise money for the Vatican to redo um, to redo some of their properties there and, and all of that sort of thing. Anyway, he came up with this little slogan where he said, when the coin within the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And uh, once again, this was totally false, totally uh, not true. And it was one of the things that motivated Luther and the other reformers because they said, you know, the Bible does not teach this. Now, what about the Catholic Church and its acceptance of it? The Catholic Church, or parts of it, has not 
always wholeheartedly accepted the Apocrypha. To review, Jerome, in 342-420 to AD, he was a great biblical scholar, translator of the Latin Vulgate. He did not accept the Apocrypha. In fact, most of the church fathers in the first, first four centuries of the church rejected the Apocrypha as scripture, including Origen, Cyril of Jerusalem, and Athanasius. The Apocrypha was not officially accepted by the Catholic Church at a universal council until 1546 at the Council of Trent. That's over a millennium and a half after the books were written, and was, as with many questionable doctrines, a counter-reaction to the Protestant Reformation. Many church fathers rejected the Apocrypha as scripture, and many just used them for devotional purposes. Now, you'll you'll find that in all kinds of writings. Well, it's not canon, but they can be used as devotional or edifying um, purposes. Do not do that. That's my recommendation. If something's false, don't use them in any way, shape, or form. They are, unfortunately, the only basis for a number of false Catholic teaching, for prayers of the dead, for alms for salvation, things like that. And to do away with the Apocrypha would be to do away with a supposed biblical basis for all of these beliefs. Now, my summary thoughts on it. Simply as a historian, and I often talk about in this series, and I I will continue to in the different things, I um, got my master's degree in church history from a secular university. And that was one of the best things that God could have guided me to, though at the time it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But if you just evaluate the documents as historical documents, what fits with what, what is a true document, what's true history, etc., when you look at these, I would simply absolutely not include the documents of the Apocrypha with the Jewish Old Testament because they were written so much later. Also, the criteria for evaluating them is no different than other ancient manuscripts in that when you look at the books of the Apocrypha, they have no known authors, no verifiable composition times or settings, obviously false history and fanciful stories. They're not in any way comparable to the factual correctness of the collected canon of Jewish scriptures. Simply on the basis of this historical evaluation, they should not be included with the canonical Old Testament. And on my personal Christian evaluation, they are obviously not divine scripture. Now, I have a final summary chart of this. Please go to Bible 805 and download it. But what I show you is how the Hebrew books of the Old Testament in what was became known as the Masoretic text, the Jewish canon, finished with Second Chronicles, the writing ended around 425 B.C. And this section of writings comes down directly to us as the Protestant Old Testament. Then, this Hebrew collection of scriptures was then translated into the Septuagint and along with the Apocrypha, the two were combined and that is what became the Old Testament with the Apocrypha and that's what's in Catholic Bibles. Now why does it matter? Because what you read and trust has an impact 
on your life today and your eternal salvation. Works and alms have no part in our salvation as the Apocrypha teaches. Salvation is totally by grace alone, with faith alone, in the works of Jesus in his death and resurrection. I encourage you to read the Bible, but without the Apocrypha. No matter how spiritual something sounds, always check its content with the Bible. Know your Bible well, so that the false is easily apparent. Know your Bible well by listening only to God's true voice in our Bible without the Apocrypha. That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this and other materials at www.bible805.com. teaching's been beneficial to you, please consider supporting it with your prayers and gifts. For how to do that, again, go to www.bible805.com. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Prynne, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.